I want to tell you a little story this morning as we get ready to, to launch into our discussion of the morning. You know, last week we started this conversation of these unquestioned answers that we, that we have in our lives. That, you know, we looked at a lot of cliches and a lot of catchphrases that people like to use just, you know, in everyday life, no pain, no gain, that type of a thing, where we just throw it out there and many times we don't stop to really think about what it means. And so... You know, we talked about how we have some of those in the church, that we have some of those catchphrases that we throw out there, and they may be completely true, they may be partially true, they may not be true at all, but we've said them our whole lives, and so we throw them out, and we don't ever stop to think about them. And actually, last night, Sarah and I were sitting down, and we were talking kind of through what we're going to talk about this morning. We were just talking about the, the discussion on these unquestioned answers in general, and, and we were talking about one in particular. I'm not going to throw out what it is right now, because... We're not going to talk about it this morning, and that would just, you would probably be derailed for the rest of the morning just thinking about that question. But she threw something out there, and I just asked her, I said, well, what about this? And she kind of answered that one. I said, what about this? And I just kept it going, knowing full well that I completely agreed with the statement that my wife was making. Like, I wasn't arguing against her. What I was challenging her with was, are you prepared to answer the questions for the answer that you're giving? Are we prepared to go further than just making a statement? Are we prepared to actually answer the questions that people are going to ask about that? You know, last week, the one that I kind of kept using as our example was, we say in the church, God is good all the time, and all the time, yeah, we say that, we believe it, I believe it to be absolutely true, but am I prepared to answer the questions that will come to that? Because even a correct answer has questions and can raise questions in people's minds. So am I prepared to answer the questions that come to that when people begin to say, well, what about when this happens? How can you say that God is good all the time when you pick up the Old Testament? How can you say that God is good all the time when I lost this family member at a young age? How can you say God is good? Fill in the blank for whatever tragedy, whatever hard time you want to put in there. You know, people were asking that question like crazy after Hurricane Katrina. How can you say that God is good when all of this destruction happened? If God is so good and he is so powerful, it's an unquestioned answer that we throw out there. Are we prepared to actually have a little bit behind our answers that we give people? We're told by Paul that we are supposed to examine everything. The writer of Proverbs told us that, you know, the, the initial answer sounds good until the cross-examination comes. Are we prepared for the cross-examination? And, and I, I would challenge you in that, and I did challenge you last week, to actually stop and take some time with these things that you really believe and just go down the list of questions that people have. Don't be afraid of doubts creeping into your mind because you're asking the questions. Because if the answer is truly solid and true, there will continue to be the true answer lying behind it. And we don't have to be afraid of asking those questions. So, I told you I was going to tell you a story. There's a story um, of a, a white man who had actually, he'd walked into this, you know, restaurant. I don't remember what kind of restaurant it was, but this white man walks into a restaurant and as he walks into a restaurant, he looks around and he sees a black woman sitting in the restaurant. And he, just putting those two things together, I saw a couple people get uncomfortable already. 
Hold on. He walks up to this woman, and he just he asked her. He said, "Do do you have five dollars to spare? You have five dollars that I that I can borrow." And this black woman looks at her, knowing the the state of the world that we live in, and her response to him was, "You." A white man are asking me, a black woman, for $5? Because in the world in which we live right now, in the world in which we've lived in for a while, um, we get very uncomfortable talking about this. And I think as we're talking about it more, in many circles we're actually growing more uncomfortable not less uncomfortable talking about this conversation. But in the world in which we live, the whether it's perception, whether it's reality, I'm not going to get into that debate right now. But it is out there that this white man would have more resources based on who he is, based on whiteness and maleness. He would have more resources, generally speaking, than this black woman. And so as this white man goes up to this black woman and he asks her if she can spare $5 and her response is, you a white man are asking me, a black woman, for $5. Like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? You, you naturally have, like, and, and beyond even the resources of this, like, you just, you just don't do this. It's not acceptable. It's not something that happens. Regardless of if you need it or not, regardless of whether or not maybe you are less resourced, you just... You don't do this type of thing. In some areas in the country, it's, it would maybe be a little bit more accepted, but in many areas of the country, that's just something that you don't do. See, what, what this black woman didn't know about this white man is that he was actually a very, he was very wealthy, and he was very, very generous. And he had done many, many things to help out people who didn't have the resources that he had. He had started organizations to help out the people who don't have the resources that he had. He was the type that if you asked him for $5, he'd give you 10. Like he was the, you know, going back to the scripture, if a man asks you to carry his stuff for a mile, you carry it for two. Like that's what this guy was like. If you would ask him, he would do it. But she didn't know that about him. What she saw is what we so often see when we look at each other. She saw a white man in America. Now you can flip the script on that one. I don't think the story is going to change a whole lot. Because so often when we look at somebody, we see what's easy to see. We see all this stuff on the outside, and we, we make assumptions straight out of the gate about what this scenario, how this scenario should play out, what should happen in this. Just based off of what these two people look like, we clump them all together with a bunch of other people who look like them, and we make assumptions. Now, I grew up in, in northwest Kansas, which is... In a lot of ways, I'm observing pretty similar to southern Indiana. Now, there's differences. For one, it's not green in, in northwest Kansas. 
But, you know, farming is still big. Um, it it kind of, it runs the area. If the crops are down, then times are tough. If the crops are good, then times are good. It's, it's conservative, much like it is here. You're going to see a lot more this year in 2020. You're going to see a lot more uh, Trump and, uh, and Pence signs than you're going to see Biden and Harris signs. You know, it, it's a lot like here in that sense. And the other way that it's a lot like here, from what I'm observing, I haven't actually stopped to look at the studies real close. I've read just the, the surface level parts of the studies, but it is also very white, just like here. So in many ways, it's a lot like Southern Indiana when we start having conversations like this. And I grew up in this town thinking, you know, I, I, I sang that song growing up. I sang the song Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And I absolutely believed it. What I didn't catch was some of the undertones of perceptions that people had around me. They weren't necessarily like, we don't like this other group of people. Or we think this other group of people is inferior or anything like that. But but there were just these little undertones of biases and these little undertones of stereotypes that would come in that some of them weren't a big deal. But others of them, while they didn't seem like it on the surface, they were a big deal. How uncomfortable are you willing to get this morning? Is anybody willing to get uncomfortable this morning? Okay, because I'm going to share with you just some of those undertones that there were that maybe, maybe exist here in southern Indiana Maybe they don't. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, and this isn't really a conversation for us here, and for that, I deeply apologize. I'm not trying to make assumptions about southern Indiana just because of what we look like or anything like that, um, but just based on things I've seen and based on conversations that I've heard uh, as I'm out and about or whatever it is. So there are these, these undertones of not that, that we, don't, we don't like people of a different color than we are, but we have basic assumptions about people of a different color. Like Asian people, and you might have heard this, Asian people are poor drivers. We would hear that comment made, and, and, the, and the laughter would be there. And honestly, I've been around some, some Asian people who are, they're really bad drivers, and I've been around some that are, they're really good drivers, and it really had nothing to do with their, their you know, their color of their skin or you know, where they came from or anything like that. It just had to do with it. Some were good drivers and, and some were bad drivers. But, and some, some laughed about it. Like in the town that I grew up in, I knew one, I had, well, I had one Asian classmate. And his family ran the Chinese restaurant in town. And so if you don't think that there were comments made about that, you're wrong. They weren't mean comments about it. But it was just a, well, of course they run the Asian restaurant in town. We had one black family in the time that I remember um, of growing up. And I remember I was a little kid, and so I didn't pay attention to everything going on around me. I will fully admit that. But I remember one family that lived in town for a year. We really didn't get to know them very well because they were only in town for a year. But the comments that I would hear made are the comments that many of us here made. I'm assuming that black people are naturally more what? Anyone know? 
What's the comment that gets made so often? Athletic. They're just naturally more athletic. Sarah and I, were, we were talking about that comment that would get made so often when I was growing up and still gets made so often now that, you know, the, I remember many football games watching the NFL where if the white guy was fast, he was sneaky fast because he's not supposed to be as fast as the black guy out there because the black guy is just naturally more athletic. I heard the comments of the black quarterback will never win a Super Bowl because they're not as smart. And we just lump it all into one. The Hispanic people, they like to take their siestas so they're lazy. The Asian people, they're just naturally more intelligent. Lumping all these people together based on what they look like, what we see on the outside here. Now, fast forward to 2020. Well, going back just a little bit, what I didn't realize at the time was how much, some people will use the word racism, some people want to use the word bias, whatever word you use on that, how much of that was just in the culture of where I live, not out of hatred, but just out of not stopping to think about what it is that was being said and what it is that was being believed and how that was spreading to other people. Now you fast forward to 2020 and there's still assumptions being made based on the color of one's skin. You fast forward to 2020 and the white man, if you look on social media or you look on CNN or whatever it is, the white man is racist and privileged. And the white man immediately defends himself. No, I'm not. That's not the way I am. Those are the stereotypes. Those are the biases. Those are the lumps that are being put together as you look at America in 2020. You look at America in 2020 and the black person is automatically oppressed and hateful towards every white person around them. You look in certain areas, you look on social media, you look on Fox News, and that's the answer that you see. That's what's going on here. That's America in 2020. We haven't haven't gotten past the stereotypes that we put on people just because of what's out here. Now, go back to that story that I was telling you about when I started this. White man walks up to a black woman. Reverse it if you want. Make it a black man and a white woman. I don't care what you do. Her response to him was based on what he looked like. An assumption was made based on what he looked like, but his response to this was not defending himself because the the underlying tone there was, well, you're a white man, so you're obviously able to take care of yourself, and you obviously don't think anything about me. This guy didn't sit there and say, no, 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 that's, I'm not like all the other people like me. Like, I, I'm not like that. I'm not, you know, he didn't spend time trying to defend himself. Instead, he just answered this woman. He said, if you knew who I was, I'm not going to tell you who I am, but if you knew who I was, you would have actually asked me instead for five bucks. And you would have known that I would have given it to you. 
and I would have given you more. And I would have given you, if you asked for them, I would have given you resources that would never run out because that's who I am. See, she immediately made an assumption based on what he looked like when in reality he was completely different. The only thing that was the same was that yes, he, he did have resources. Some of you have figured this out, but that, that's actually not a story that I've ever heard in my entire life. Except for in John chapter four. When Jesus goes to a well and he meets a Samaritan woman and he goes up to this woman at the well and he says, will you please pull me a drink? Will you draw me a drink? And she looks at him and she says, who are you, a Jewish man, who are you, a Jew, to ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? See, the underlying tones there were that Jews don't talk to Samaritans, and Samaritans don't talk to Jews because Samaritans are half-breeds, and Jews are purebloods. If there's Harry Potter fans in the room, you'll really connect that with mudbloods and all that kind of stuff. But, but no, Jews are pure. Samaritans are half-breeds who have been deluded. That was the perception, that was the belief that they had. That was the reason when, when Peter had a vision, after Jesus ascended into heaven, when Peter had a vision of all this unclean food that Jewish people weren't supposed to eat coming down, and he was told to eat it, and his response was, no, I've never eaten a, an unclean thing. I've never eaten something in my life that I wasn't supposed to eat. And Jesus' response to him with, in this vision was, don't call unclean what I have made clean. Don't call unclean what I have said is clean. What he was talking about was not food. Because immediately when that was over, he told Peter, get up and go to Cornelius' house. And go into his house and eat a meal with Cornelius. And if you fast forward in that story a little bit, you actually see that Peter, he fights back and forth a little bit. But eventually he goes because Jewish people were not supposed to enter the home of a Gentile or Samaritan person. They were not supposed to even associate with them because those people were not good enough people. You can rewind America's history just a little bit and get back to the 50s and 60s. And you have these things called colored bathrooms and white bathrooms because colored people were dirty and white people were pure are you seeing how it hasn't changed? I have on my board in my office the list of excuses, the list of reasons that I hear as to all the reasons that it's not as bad as it used to be. Well, it's not as bad as it used to be because we all use the same bathroom now. It's not as bad as it used to be because we had a black president for crying out loud. It's not as bad as it used to be because everybody's allowed to vote now. It's not as bad as it used to be because. And the reasons, there's a lot of reasons out there. But there are ways that it is every bit as bad as it used to be in the 50s and 60s and every bit as bad as it was when Jesus told, or not when Jesus told the story, but when Jesus went up to a Samaritan woman and asked her for a drink of water knowing that if anybody saw him do that, he 
would be judged for it too. Because there are still these biases that we have. There are still the comments made about how the black person is not as intelligent as the white person. There are still the comments made about how the white person cannot be as athletic as the black person. There are still the arguments of who should have first dibs at a job. Should it be based on color or should it be based on merit? There are still these arguments going on. And so while on the surface, it's not as bad in some ways, in the hearts of men, this is where it gets tricky. Because in the hearts of men, in some, it is way better. And in the hearts of men of others, and when I say men, I mean men and women, in the hearts of others, nothing has changed. Benjamin Watson, in a book called Under Our Skin, that I read, really I picked it up after George Floyd's death. Because Benjamin Watson, so he was a a former NFL tight end, he played for the Patriots, I try not to hold that against him. He played for the Patriots, caught a bunch of touchdown passes from Tom Brady, which I realize is like the the guy that you don't talk about if you're a Colts fan. He played for the New Orleans Hornets, and he played for somebody else. I don't remember who. But after uh, after Ferguson, several years ago, Benjamin Watson got on Facebook, and he wrote a post that I wish that I had brought in here. Now that I'm standing up here and I'm talking about it, I was like, I should have just read the entire post to you, even if it took a couple of minutes. But he got on, and he, he wrote a post on Facebook after Darren Wilson, not sorry, not Darren Wilson, sometimes the name's because there's so many instances, begin to run together. But after Ferguson, he got on, and after the police officer was acquitted, he got on and he wrote about his emotions. And some of them were really positive. I'm encouraged, because this is not the same world that my father had to live in. I am actually able to come out here and to make millions in a job that I can quit if I would like to quit. That's great, but I'm discouraged because this is still going on, and people are still killing each other, and people are still yelling at each other, and people are still hating each other based on the color of their skin. And he, he went back and forth with a, with a bunch of different just emotions that he had inside of him. And one of the significant things about it, well, two significant things about Benjamin Watson writing this Facebook page is, one, Benjamin Watson is a black male. And he was being told by all of those around him, how can you get on and write a message like this? Like you should be just infuriated and hateful and, and down, with the, down with the system. Like that's your role. That's what you should be feeling right now. And he did not allow himself to be lumped into one group of people. It's kind of like the white person who doesn't fall in line with all the white people that they're around, and everyone's looking at them and they're saying, how can you support some of the changes that are being fought for? Like, you should be indignant against this. You're a Republican for crying out loud. You should be indignant about this. But his reasoning behind it was, it's because it's I'm not first a black man. I am first a follower of Christ. And because I'm a follower of Christ, 
I can be encouraged in the midst. I'm, I'm infuriated that that happened. But I don't believe that everybody that looks like that feels that way. I don't believe that everybody that does that job feels that way. Now, before this starts coming across as a, you know, because again, I understand, I'm speaking to a primarily white audience. Before this begins to come across as a, see, the black people need to understand that we're not all like that. White people, we need to understand that not all black people or people of color feel the same way either about things. See, it's real easy to turn on Fox News and see what's happening in Portland and say that the entire BLM movement enjoys what's going on in Portland, Oregon right now. It's real easy to say that. And honestly, it's real easy to find an article by some expert somewhere that will tell you that that's true. And what that does is it continues to further a divide. Now, I could continue to stand up here and I could talk about this for the next several hours because there is that much to talk about. And I, I hesitate to move on because I also understand that in the culture in which we live, in the world in which we live, it is really easy for someone to have heard something I've said on, in here this morning and to grab onto one statement and to see, see, Justin thinks this about white people or Justin thinks this about black people or Justin thinks this about people of color or, or for that matter, someone could take a sound bite and they could catch me saying that Asian people are bad drivers and they could take that sound bite and put it out there and the next thing you know, Monroe City First Church of God is a bunch of people who don't like Asian people when that wasn't at all what I was talking about at that point. So I hesitate to move on because the temptation in here this morning is to make sure that you fully understand every little ounce of what I'm trying to say. But we don't have that much time. What we do have are cell phones. I have an office. We have the ability to communicate. And what I would beg of you is if there is something that I've said this morning so far that has just really upset you and, or you're, you're not sure, what did he mean by that? Like, where does he actually land on these issues? I'm not gonna stand up here and endorse a candidate. I'm not gonna endorse a movement. I'm not gonna endorse a lot of things. But what I will do is I will sit down with you and gladly answer your questions that you have to the answer that I've given. I will gladly do that. But I need you to let me know that you have those questions in the first place. Not jump on social media. Sorry, my, this is buzzing and driving me crazy. Okay, sorry. I don't know why it was buzzing, but it was, I need to not wear this thing if it's gonna do that to me in the middle of a message. <laughs> because I wanna give you what I believe we need to do about this. And some people are going to hear it and they're going to be like, yep, there's that simple answer again. I don't think it's a simple answer at all. See, I don't, I don't have the, this is what you need to do. I've seen on social media, I've heard in conversations, well, Jesus would be protesting right now. And I'm not sure that's true. But I'm also not sure it's true that Jesus wouldn't be protesting right now. See, I don't have the answer for what you need to do. I struggled with this myself 
um, immediately after George Floyd was killed, there was, a, there was a protest in Casper, Wyoming, and I struggled with whether or not to go attend that protest because I have people that I know and I love in the police force, and I know that their hearts are in this for the right reason, and I know that they are out there to protect, and I know that they are out there to serve, and I didn't want them to think that I was out here protesting them or anything like that, but I also, at the same time, I wanted people to know that I do stand against racism with you, but then you get into the whole, where's the systemic racism part of this? What does all of that mean? I didn't stand in complete solidarity with the protesters because I'm not gonna go up to the police officer who didn't do it and shove a sign in their face and scream at them. Like, but I, I stood with them on some things, but not on all things. And so I struggled with this. What do I do at this point? Because I'm not fully on one side or another. And I think that might be one of the key things that we have to understand in this is that we cannot put our foot or our two feet solely in one camp. We cannot put our feet solely in the Republican Party because I hate to break it to you, I know I'm in Republican territory, but the Republican Party is not the Christian Party. And we cannot put our feet solely in the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is not the Christian Party. I read a post by one of my old college friends uh, a couple of days ago that said to, to fully embrace everything about one party or the other is to fully disregard some part of Scripture. Because both of them have policies that do not line up with Scripture. And so to fully put ourselves into one camp or another disregards the fact that we are supposed to be Christ followers first and foremost. And that story, Jesus didn't respond with a, let me tell you about all the things I've done. His response in John chapter four to the woman at the well was that if you knew who it was that was asking you for water, you would instead ask me for water and I would have given you water so that you would have never had to drink again. Jesus did not look at what was on the outside of this Samaritan woman, this woman that he should not have been talking to, one, because she was a woman and two, because she was a Samaritan. He didn't look at that. Instead, what he saw was a created being of his father. You know, as I've, as I've prayed about this this week, the thought that's come to my mind is, you know, we ask the question, what would Jesus do? We ask the question, what would Jesus think? I think as Jesus looks at the world, he's not colorblind. I think Jesus looks at the world and he sees red and yellow, black and white, and he believes they're all precious in his sight. He sees short and he sees tall. He sees rail thin and he sees heavy set. He sees all of these different things. When he looks at his people, he sees bald and he sees full head of hair. But where sometimes we look at those things and we see an imperfection or an inferiority, what he does is he looks at this whole thing and he sees this is the masterpiece that I have put on canvas. 
And I would say he wonders how we don't see the same thing except that he's God and I think he does understand how we click. But I think he sits there and he's going, why don't you see the same thing? Why don't you look at the incredible creativity that my mind has come up with? Why don't you see all of these different things? Why don't you look at those and go, man, this is absolutely incredible how different we are. Because if we're being honest, we are not all the same. If I brought Dan Emmert up here, and I say Dan because you're right there. If I brought Dan up here, you would not look at us and be, I see the same person. No, that strips us of our individuality that God has created within us, where he says that no two people are the same. We don't have the same fingerprints. We don't have the same hair. We don't have the same eye color. He's definitely a lot taller than I am. We are not the same person, and that's okay. That doesn't decrease my value because I never hit 5'10", and it doesn't increase his value because he's 6' whatever he is. It doesn't change the value. It just changes the picture on the front And he looks at us and he sees the same valuable being underneath the incredible artistry on the outside. Ben Watson, again, he he makes a statement of racism is not a skin problem. Racism is a sin problem. Racism is not about the color of the skin. It's not about you looking different than me. Racism is me valuing one human being over another. Whatever color it is that I decide to value the most, racism is about valuing one human being over another. It's not the matter of just seeing that they're different. It's putting a different value on top of them because they look different. Jesus was a social justice warrior. That's the phrase that got coined about 20 years ago. Jesus was a social justice warrior. And it's our unquestioned answer this morning. And here's why it's an unquestioned answer and the question that I want you to ask. Social justice, and I would encourage you to, uh, to go look at a blog by a guy named Neil Shinby. S-H-E-N-V-I, Neil Shinby. But social justice is about lumping people together. It's about fighting for a people group against another people group. If you think about the social justice initiatives, it's about fighting for the rights of black people against the rights of white people. It's about fighting for the rights of white women, or not white women, women, against the rights of men. Social justice is about grouping people. It ignores the fact that sometimes things get reversed. And sometimes the group that is seen as the oppressor actually gets oppressed. Social justice ignores that and it's about making groups of people. Jesus was about making individuals. That's not to say that we just say, it's not happening, we're just gonna go on. Because the, the one person of color that I know has a good life, 
then it's not going on anywhere. It's not ignoring what's going on around us. But instead, what Jesus did, what I see as I read through the Gospels, is Jesus found individuals. And he made sure that they understood their value. And then he told them to go out and to make sure that other people know their value. He showed Peter his value. And then he made sure that Peter went out and showed Cornelius his value. When Peter first got to Cornelius' house, his first comment was, all right, so normally I would never walk into your home. Not the greatest opening statement when you walk into someone's house. Like, as of yesterday, I would not have stepped foot in this house. But today, it's all good. Not, it's not how I'm going to start it if I walk into your home. But he said, Peter, you're going to go to Cornelius, and you're going to show Cornelius that he is my masterpiece. Cornelius is a Gentile. You're a Jew. You're both my masterpieces, and you're going to spread that. And then Cornelius is going to end up spreading that. And whoever Cornelius spreads it to is going to spread it. I don't have the answers as to what we need to do. Other than, I do believe that we have got to stop and look at how do I value people? How do I judge people? What do I think when I see somebody? What do I feel when I see somebody? What do I believe about that person? And be brutally honest. My hope is that you look at people and you see that they are a masterpiece of our creator. They are every bit as valuable as me. They are not more valuable than me. They are definitely not less valuable than me. We are all equally valuable. But what I also don't want us to do, I believe that's the first thing that we have to do, but I don't want us to just get to the point where we decide to be lazy and just for the next five years, the only thing I'm going to do is look at my own heart. It's the same thing I tell people with, you know, I, I've heard people say, well, I, I, I'm not really engaging people in conversations about Jesus right now because right now I'm really just trying to, to, uh, to deepen my own spiritual walk with him and I'm digging into scripture myself and I'm, I'm doing Bible studies myself and I need to get myself where I need to be. And my response to them sometimes is, well, you've been doing that for the last five years, so at what point do you actually do something for somebody else in this scenario? It's the same thing with this. We need to look inside our hearts, but we also need to look around us. And we need to make sure that we are showing other people that they are valuable in the eyes of the creator. We need to stop jumping into one camp or another, and we need to stop going to one extreme or another, and we need to stop making these extreme statements on social media. We need to, we need to stop getting into the arguments and instead have the discussions with people. If you believe that you are supposed to march in a protest, I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you that you shouldn't, but if you believe that you shouldn't do it, I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you that you should. Because I don't know all of that part of it. 
But what I do know is there's a lot of people walking around not willing to admit, and I'm throwing myself into this, into this pot. There's a lot of people walking around not willing to admit where their own heart lies and what their own heart believes. Jesus did not look at the outside. And as he finished up that conversation with that woman, he never came right out until the very end and said, this is who I am. Instead, he showed that woman who he was. He showed that woman just by sitting down with her and having a conversation. He showed that woman who he was just by showing her that she was valuable. He didn't say, hey, you are talking to the Son of God right now. Watch your, watch your tone. He showed her just how important she was. And then you know what she did? She ran into the town and she told everybody else. See, we like to sometimes say, well, that's what people need to do. They need to run it. No, we need to stop and just say, I need to be the one running into town telling everybody else. Not you need to hear this and go out and tell everyone else. I need to tell everyone else. These are uncomfortable conversations. You know, there's a reason there's a YouTube channel right now called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man because they are uncomfortable conversations. But they're not ones that we should be afraid of. They're only uncomfortable because we're so used to just stamping things down. We're gonna talk about things in here. Not always quite this, like you guys are so quiet this morning, it is incredible. Like I, I can tell, like there is, a, there is something in this room, there is a tension in this room. My wife's probably over there going, do we need to look for a place to move? Um, <laughs> she literally said that last night. But... We, it is hard. It's not easy. And I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. Uh, worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. It's not easy, and I'm not going to make it sound like it is easy. But it's important. And it's something that we've got to do. And if that means that we have some moments where we, we fidget a little bit, and, and we're like, I, man, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know what I should do in this moment. Man, every morning when you wake up, just ask God, hey, I need you to show me what I'm supposed to be doing today. Because if you just try and figure it out on yourself, you're going to run every time. I mean, I don't know how many times I've, I've I should probably stop now because I'm going to end up saying something that's going to get me in trouble. But I don't know how many times I've walked through a grocery store and I'm like, I feel like I should go up and say something to that person. But... I mean, I don't want them to feel like I'm only doing it because, you know, they're a different color than I am and I'm just like showing pity on them. And, and maybe that was God saying, you know what, just go do it. Just go talk to somebody and let them know like, hey, just wanted you to know that I think you're valuable. Now, if you only do it with one color of person, then at some point it might start coming across that, hey, I'm only doing this with one color of person because I think you need special treatment. Do it with everybody because everyone is walking around with some sort of insecurity or some sort of curiosity as to are people looking at me right now thinking this about me. I've been on staff everywhere I've gone with a bunch of really tall pastors and I stand up there and I'm like, 
hey, how's it going up there? And I sit there and I go, people are looking at me and they're like, oh, who's the little kid up there with, with all the grown-ups? You know, like that, I, I have that run through my head. And, you know, you don't know what it is that someone just needs to hear how valuable they really are. I probably wouldn't start the conversation by walking up and saying, hey, I just want you to know you're valuable. Especially if you're a 40-year-old man and she's a 16-year-old girl. I probably wouldn't start the conversation that way. But I know who can tell you how to start that conversation. He's the same one who says that you're valuable. And he's the same one who says that you are my masterpiece. I'm going to end with this or else I'll just keep talking. I'm sorry. I ask my daughters and my son every night, and I've told you this before, I ask them three questions. Who made you? And their answer is God. What did he make you? And their answer is a masterpiece. And what did he make you to do? And their answer is great things. And then I've started adding in a fourth on occasion because I don't want them to get too used to it. Who else did he make? And their answer is everyone. Which means everyone, regardless of what they look like, is God's masterpiece. And I want them at nine, seven, and two to begin always having that in their brain. That everyone they see, even the, even the rioter, even the politician you don't agree with, even the police officer, even the man that you're sitting here going, well, if he wouldn't have been doing that, then he wouldn't have gotten shot. All of them, regardless of where you're, you go, all of those people are God's masterpiece. Would you stand and sing with us?